This morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31. Today I want to speak to you on the topic of godly generosity. Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 16, let's begin at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony there. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to, the, to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This story compares and contrasts the plight of two men. Jesus begins with a familiar phrase. There was a rich man. We don't know anything about this rich man's trade. We don't know how he accumulated a great wealth. We just know that this rich man lived in the lap of luxury every day of the week. To say that he wore purple clothes is not to necessarily say that his favorite color was purple or that Grimace was his favorite McDonald's character or that the Minnesota Vikings were his favorite football team. Clothes that were dipped and dyed in purple were usually reserved for royalty. Only the rich and the famous could afford purple clothes. Jesus says that this man's clothing is so extravagant that Jesus even comments on his fine linen undergarments. In other words, uh, even this man's fruit of the looms were high dollar. This man was dressed to the nines, inside and out, top to bottom. He lived in a large mansion. I'm assuming that he probably drove a very spacious SUV chariot. He probably ate the delicacies of his day every day. Jesus says that he had a large gate 
at the entrance to his property. Which communicates to you that this man lived in a gated community. In fact, he was the only resident in his own gated community. The word that's translated gate uh, communicates a gate that's very large. A gate the size of one that would uh, mark the entrance to a village or a town. Or even a temple. So this man had a luxurious place to live. He was filthy rich. It's at this point that Jesus introduces us to the second man. The second man is a poor man, probably a crippled. This uh, paralytic had to be brought to the gate, and he eked out his existence based on the generosity of other people. He was a beggar by trade. He not only was crippled, but he was also hungry. He longed to fill his stomach with the scraps that fell off the rich man's table. This crippled man was not only hungry, but he was diseased. He had sores all over his body. He was so weak that he could not even shoo away the stray dogs who came to lick his sores. This is a pathetic sight. Jesus gives this poor man a name. He names him. Lazarus. That's interesting, isn't it? In this story, the rich man's anonymous. The poor man is given a name. Jesus knows that in his culture, it's just like every other culture, that most of us only know the names of the rich and the famous. I mean, we want to know how the rich and famous live. We, we want to know what they eat and what they wear. When we go to the grocery line, it's the rich and famous that seems to plaster the magazine covers. I mean, you never find on the cover of a magazine some poor joker who lives on the streets of Detroit. You only find people that are rich and famous because our culture, just like the culture of Jesus, is enamored with the rich and the famous. But in this story, the rich man is anonymous. The poor man is given a name. That's Jesus' way of communicating that God knows your name. He knows the name of the poor and lowly. He knows the name of the social outcast. He knows the name that nobody else gives the time of day. Most of us are not really the rich and the famous. History will not write many volumes about many of us. Most of us will walk through this sod 70, 80, 90 years, we'll be here and then we'll be gone and history probably will not retell our stories. Most of us are just common folk. Most of us are the average Jack and Jill. Most of us are just common individuals, yet Jesus says even the common folk Jesus knows by name. He calls him Lazarus. Lazarus was a very popular name throughout the Bible. It's a name that literally means helped by God. Aaron had a son named Lazarus. Abraham had one of his most trusted servants named Lazarus. In Jewish history, there was a patriot that was very popular, and his name was Lazarus. And of course, who of us can forget the sibling of Mary and Martha? Stories told there in John chapter 11, his name is Lazarus. But this morning, I don't want you to confuse any of those examples of Lazarus with this story of this man named Lazarus in Luke 16. This is not the same character as the one in John 11. 
First of all, the Lazarus in John 11 is a real dude. This one is a fictitious story. The Lazarus, who was the sibling of Mary and Martha, he was not poor, nor was he crippled. He was just dead. But the guy in this story, his name is Lazarus. Not to be confused with any other Lazarus that's ever walked the world. We would do well to note, this is the only character in any of the stories of Jesus that receives a name. Now think about it. There's no other character in the parables of Jesus that you know their name. Everybody's anonymous. You don't know the name of the shepherd who lost one of his sheep. You don't know the name of the woman who lost one of her coins. You don't know the name of the father or the name of the two boys who were far from the father, one in the distant country and one who never left the family farm. You don't know the name of the one who tore down his existing barns to build bigger barns. You don't know the name of the manager who somehow paid the servant who worked one hour the same amount as he paid the servant who worked a 12-hour shift. You don't know any of their names. You begin to look back over the landscape of the parables of Jesus, and you have to conclude that most, if not all of them, are anonymous except for this one. This is the only time that Jesus names a character, and he names him Lazarus, helped by God. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're named or anonymous, there is one inevitability of life. All of us die. I don't mean to sound morbid this morning, but it's true, isn't it? I mean, there are some inevitabilities of life. One of them is the fact that all of us die. In this story, both the rich man and Lazarus die. We are told that when Lazarus died, the angels of God came and carried him to Abraham's side. That's a description in Jewish thought of heaven. Heaven was always portrayed as the side of Abraham. So to say that Lazarus was carried by angels to the side of Abraham is Jesus' way of saying that Lazarus went to heaven when he died. I'm sure that when he died, there probably was no formal funeral. He didn't live with dignity. He wasn't about to die with dignity. He may have even just been left there on the side of the street for his body to decay. Probably the only things that mourned his death were the dogs that could no longer come and lick his sores. If this man named Lazarus did have a funeral, there probably weren't very many people who showed up. Maybe just the preacher. Maybe the man who brought him every day to that gate to beg there probably weren't very many people that showed up for his funeral, if he even had a funeral at all. But Jesus said the rich man was buried. What does he mean by that? He means that the rich man lived with dignity and he died in dignity. He lived in the lap of luxury and he died going out in style. He was giving a proper funeral. He had five brothers. I'm sure that those five brothers got the best professional mourners that money could buy. Probably the greatest flute players and trumpet players were paid and invited to come and do some of the funeral music. I can well imagine that the place was packed. The preacher probably stood up and admonished everyone to live like this man. After all, it's inevitable that he was blessed by God. He had the right pedigree. He was a Jewish man. He had wealth, and in the first century, a sure sign of divine favor was believed to be wealth. 
So I'm sure that the preacher stood up and went on and on about the man who was lying in the mahogany casket with the diamond-studded linen interior. He probably went on and on about this man and admonished each and every person in the crowd to live more like him. After all, this man had given a one-time large gift uh, to the local synagogue and we plastered his name on the outside of the Family Life Center because this was a good man. I'm sure that after the funeral was over, the procession went to the graveside. They had the service there. They went back to the family estate to have the meal. Then everybody went back about their business. It's at this point that Jesus pulls back the curtain. Everything's not always the way it seems. Jesus allows us to see the visible, which is normally invisible. Jesus shows us that Lazarus is by the side of Abraham in heaven, but the rich man is in torment in hell. Somehow, someway in Jesus' story, the rich man could look up and see Father Abraham. He's got to be somewhat of a religious guy because he recognizes Abraham. He even recognizes Lazarus. The rich man says to Abraham, Father Abraham, uh, send Lazarus to go dip his finger in water and come and cool my tongue. I'm in agony here because of all the fire. I find it interesting that even though the rich man probably never gave Lazarus the time of day, at least he knows his name. Even in the afterlife, he knows his name. His name is Lazarus. But I do find it rather depressing to realize that this rich man never seemed to learn his lesson because he never addressed Lazarus directly, not even in the afterlife. He never addressed him directly. He spoke to him only through Abraham. He said to Abraham, I want you to send Lazarus. For Lazarus is a nobody. He's an insignificant. He's just a servant. He exists to do my bidding, even in the afterlife. I want you to send Lazarus to go dip his finger in water and come and cool my tongue. And Abraham says, Son, I want you to remember that in your life, you receive good things. In his lifetime, he received bad things. And now, he is being comforted here. And now, you are in agony there. Besides, there's a great chasm that's been fixed between you and us. You cannot come to us, neither can we come to you. Friends, i got to tell you that those first couple of sentences are some of the most awkward sentences in all of Luke's Gospel. Did you hear what he said? Father Abraham says to the rich man, um, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus received bad things. Now he is being comforted here and you are in agony there. At first read, it sounds like that Lazarus went to heaven because he was poor on earth. And the rich man went to hell because he was rich on earth. It's almost as if Abraham is saying, you can either be blessed here or you can be blessed there. 
And you, rich man, were blessed on earth, so you can't be blessed in the eternal in the eternal afterlife. And Lazarus was not blessed on earth, therefore he is going to be blessed here in heaven. So it seemed as if that um, what Abraham is saying is that Lazarus is in heaven because he was poor, and the rich man's in hell because he was rich. And yet, if a misguided individual misunderstands this story, that person might walk away thinking that somehow God is in favor of the divine redistribution of wealth. And my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach that your entrance into the kingdom of God is somehow tied to your socioeconomic status on earth. You're not going to heaven because of your riches or lack thereof. Think about the previous chapter, Luke chapter 15. Entrance into God's kingdom is based on repentance, not riches. There'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In John chapter 14, entrance into God's kingdom is based not on riches, but on relationship. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You've got to go through Christ in order to get to God. So your entrance into the kingdom of God is not based on your riches or lack thereof. It's based on repentance. It's based on relationship. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that entrance into God's kingdom is not based on riches. It's based on righteousness. Or in Matthew 25, Jesus says the wicked will go away in eternal condemnation, but the righteous will go away to eternal life. Your entrance into God's kingdom is not tied or bound to your socioeconomic status. It's not related to your riches or lack thereof. If you're going to get into heaven, it's because of your repentance of sin, because of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, because of your declared righteousness that's stamped upon you because of the accomplished work of our Lord at Calvary. So what is Jesus driving at? What's his point? Why does he say this? Well, it's important to note that Jesus is speaking predominantly to Pharisees. In the previous verses, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one or hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus went on to say to those Pharisees, you know how to justify yourself in the eyes of men, but God knows the heart. In fact, what is highly valued among men is detestable in the sight of God. In the story that Jesus told, the rich man personified everything that the Pharisees loved. He personified everything that they loved. He had the right pedigree. He had the right lineage. 
He had the right heritage. He was a child of Abraham. And he was filthy rich. And it was believed, it was taught by the Pharisees that a sure sign of divine acceptance and divine favor was communicated through wealth. So if a person had wealth, then inevitably, undoubtedly, they were blessed by God. This rich man personifies everything that the Pharisees loved. And the poor man named Lazarus personifies everything that the Pharisees hated. To be crippled, to be diseased, to be ill, to be poor, to be hungry, to be destitute was a sure sign of divine condemnation. God must have it out for you if you are described by those words. That's what was taught in the first century by the Pharisees. So when the Pharisees saw and heard the story of Jesus, they fully expected for the rich man to go to Abraham's side and the poor man named Lazarus to go to the place of torment, hell, a fixed chasm, a place of, of an inferno in a fire they expected the, the poor man Lazarus to go to hell and the rich man to go to heaven but Jesus flips the script Jesus changes it inside out and upside down he knows that the Pharisees love being rich they're lovers of money he also knows that they really in their hearts despised the destitute and the sick and the poor and the hungry because surely there was a, 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 a sign of divine condemnation. So Jesus does what he always does. He throws a curveball that leaves them buckled in the knees. I want to tell you this morning that Lazarus in this story is in heaven. Not because he was financially poor, but because he was spiritually bankrupt. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't you? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He says that if you want to enter God's kingdom, you've got to come as one who is a spiritual beggar. On bended knee with head down cast, arms outstretched, palm open heavenward, and you and I just simply beg and we plead for forgiveness. And we ain't too proud to beg, are we? Because we realize that we have no leg to stand on. There's no way we can merit our salvation. There's no way we can earn it. There's no way that we can do enough good to deserve entrance into God's kingdom. We come to him as a spiritual beggar. We are spiritually destitute. We are bankrupt before the Lord. And we come to him saying, Lord, I need you to forgive. For if you do not forgive me, if you do not wipe away my sin, I will die in condemnation. So Jesus, I come unto you as a spiritual beggar. Lazarus is at the side of Abraham. He's in heaven. Not because he's financially poor, but because he understood he was spiritually bankrupt. The rich man is in hell, not because he was financially rich. He's in hell because he thought himself to be his own savior. He didn't need anything. Everything he needed, everything he wanted, he could buy for himself. He could do whatever he wanted to do. He lived in a very plush mansion. He had vehicles. He had servants. 
He ate the choices of foods. I mean, he never needed anything. You remember when Jesus prayed and taught us to pray? He said, I want you to go to your father and I want you to ask for daily bread. It's hard to ask for daily bread when you're a rich guy who has a cupboard full of bread that would last for a week. You know, if we're not careful, we can, we can kind of resemble that rich guy, right? I mean, when was the last time you prayed for daily bread? Most of us, we open the cupboard in our homes and we have enough bread. I mean, we got hot dog buns and hamburger buns and we've got loaves of bread. We've got English muffins. We've got all kinds of things. And in the event that we ever run low, what do we do? We get into our nice fancy car that gets us to the grocery store, and then we stand there trying to make a decision because there are 37,000 forms of bread that we can choose from once we get to the grocery store. We can go to the deli and get some of the freshest of bread, or we can go into the aisle and get some of that bread. And either way, all that bread is pretty good. And so we've got all kinds of bread and all kinds of choices, and sometimes it just might be difficult to pray for daily bread when you can buy a week's worth of bread with your own hard-earned money that you got from a good, well-paying job. Such is the life of the rich man. He didn't really need God. At least that's what he thought. He thought himself to be a self-made man. He was as religious as the next guy. And if he ever got into a pinch, I'm sure he probably prayed unto the Lord. But by and large, he could pretty much provide for himself. And he was all right. Or so he thought. And it's that greed. It's that arrogance that landed him in a place of agony torment that you and I call hell. At least the rich man is not completely selfish. He does say to Father Abraham, will you please send Lazarus to my five brothers and warn them not to come to this God-forsaken place. They're on the same track I was on. I realize that now... I." can't do anything about my condition it's sealed at the moment of death but my brothers are still alive and maybe Lazarus can go and warn them not to come here they've got to change their thinking they've got to change their way of life they've got to change their understanding of God they've got to change their understanding of themselves they've got to change or they're going to end up the very same place I am please tell Lazarus to go and Abraham says eh They've got Moses and they've got the prophets. Let them listen to them. What does he say? Father Abraham says, they've got the scripture. They've got the Bible. Read it. Believe it. Listen to it. Learn from it. It'll clearly show you who God is and what he expects. You want life? Just read the book. Read it, and it'll clearly tell you, because God's Word is relevant. You don't have to make it relevant. It already is. It's reliable. You don't have to make it reliable. It already is. All you have to do is go to the Word of God, realizing it is the very Word of God. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. What, what would you learn in the Old Testament? that would tell you who God is and what he expects. I'll list a few things for you. In Deuteronomy is the great Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. 
The psalmist asks a great question. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. The Lord says to Samuel, I desire obedience even more than sacrifice. To heed is greater than the fat of rams. And what does the Lord say to and through the prophet Micah? What does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. Let them read and listen and believe and learn. They'll come to God as a spiritual beggar, and they'll live. But he had one more request, didn't he? The rich man said, yes, I know they have the Bible. We've got multiple copies of the Bible. They're all over the place. But we never really read it. Um, But if you send Lazarus to them, they'll listen. I mean, if if you send back somebody who was dead and they come back to life, surely my brothers will listen to him and they will repent. I find it interesting that at some point along the conversation, the rich man got it. He understood why he was in hell. The reason? Because he had not repented. And he said, my brothers are just like me. They're cut out of the same cloth. And if they don't repent, they will be here too. So please, send Lazarus, raise him from the dead, send him back, and my brothers will hear, and they will repent. Even the rich man finally understood. It was too late, but he understood. But you've got to repent in order to get into God's kingdom. But it does cause me to question, from what did they need to repent? Oh, I know, you could say sin. I know, but what specifically? What specifically did they need to repent? I mean, in this story, Jesus gives us no indication that somehow the brothers were uh, immoral. Somehow they had gotten their wealth by dishonest ways. We are nowhere told that somehow these guys had uh, immoral lifestyles or they threw frat parties on Thursday and Friday night and then went to church on the weekend. No, we're given every indication that these guys are as religious as anybody else. They're probably pretty fine, moral, upstanding individuals, yet there's something they need to repent. From what do they need to repent? The one simple answer, greed. They needed to repent from greed. Because of greed, they thought they were self-made men. Because of greed, they felt as if they did not need God. Because of greed, they felt as if they could provide everything that they needed. And the more that they had, they thought would make them happier and more blessed. They were greedy, greedy, greedy. The one sin that they needed to repent from was the sin of greed. Greed had gripped their heart. Their goods had become their gods. They had been stuffed by their stuff. They were possessed by their possessions. And if you're not careful, the same thing can happen to you, my friend. The best way to loosen the grip of greed is to give. Give it away. You have a greedy heart? Give it to the Lord. You have a greedy wallet, give it to the Lord. You have a greedy mind, give it to the Lord. You have a greedy family, give them to the Lord. I mean, the best thing you can do to loosen the grip of greed on your life is to give and to give it unto the Lord. It was Chris Willard 
who said that generosity is the place where the great commandment and the great commission embrace. It's generosity. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great commission, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, for surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Chris Willard says that when you have the great commandment and the great commission embracing, there you have a person of generosity. I want to be very clear. I've told you this before, and I'll tell you it again. I do not want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. We are not in the business of making a budget. We're in the business of making disciples. We're not about raising money here. We're about raising followers of Christ. And one of the tools that God uses to help shape and fashion you into his disciple is this tool of generosity. We are generous unto the Lord because he's been generous unto us. So it begs the question, how generous are we as a people of God? How generous are we? I'm so glad that you asked. I look back over uh, 2014 and 2015, and you know that in 2015, God added 225 persons to this faith family. And uh, of those 225 persons, uh, there was an uptick of 75 additional giving units in 2015 versus 2014. When I say a giving unit, I mean a household. I mean uh, it could be a single person. It could be a husband and a wife. It could be a family of five. You begin to do the math, and you think to yourself, now, wait a minute. I mean, if you, if you got several families in that mix, then 75 additional giving units, you begin to do the math, and it can quickly get pretty close to the 225 additions. I look back and I realize that from 2014 to 2015, there was an increase in contributions by $264,000. I thought you'd be more excited than that. <laughs> I just told you from one year to the next, there was an additional quarter of a million dollars. $264,000. <laughs> if you want to try to figure out, well, how does that average out to the uh, average annual gift? Uh, of those 75 additional units, well, you take 75 and you divide it into 264,000 and you get 3,520. So the average household that was new to the church gave last year $3,520. That got me to thinking, well, what is the average for all of us? Um, I'm glad you asked that question too because I look back and I've got that number as well. In 2015, there were 718 giving units. 718 giving units, who contributed $2,690,000. Uh, so you do that math, and on average, uh, each household gave in 2015 $3,746. So on average, we're giving somewhere between $3,500 and $3,700. Okay, that's the average gift. We have 718 giving units, and on average, that gift is somewhere between $3,500 and $3,700. To God be the glory. Then it got me to thinking. What, what is the average income of Shelby County? Because you always have to see things in the context of, of ministry. So what is the median household income of Shelby County, of which we reside? 
And the answer came that uh, the median household income in 2015 in Shelby County was $69,400. Now, I realize that uh, tithing is not a word that is used in the New Testament. It is an Old Testament word. Uh, when it comes to the New Testament, uh, the Scripture just speaks about grace-giving. It speaks about uh, hilarious generosity, generosity that is so off the charts that it makes you chuckle and it makes God laugh. Right? I mean, he looks down and says, whoa, you're blessing my socks off. I'm really glad. So because of that, I think at the very least, we should assume that a 10% tithe is a baseline. Uh-oh, wait a minute. If a 10% is a baseline and the average median household income in Shelby County last year was $69,400, then we should be given somewhere approximately $7,000 as the average gift. And what did I just tell you? I told you the average gift was somewhere between $3,500 and $3,700. I just throw it out there for your consideration. I can't tell you how much to give. I can't make you give. That's between you and the Lord. And you got to wrestle with Him. You got to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? This much I, I, I know is true. He will prompt you to be more generous than you think it's even possible. At least that's been my experience. Lord, you want me to give that? I don't think I can do that. I've never had a conversation with the Lord where he gave me an amount or I felt kind of in a conversation with my wife, uh, this is what we ought to give. And, and the Lord says, no, that's way too much. <laughs> I've never had that experience where the Lord says to me, what are you thinking? That's way too much. Usually I shoot too low, never too high. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because generosity is a mark of being a disciple of Christ. I mean, the rich guy's in hell because he's greedy. He's his own God. He thinks that his stuff is for himself. The poor beggar, even though he's poor, named Lazarus, he's in heaven because he realizes he's a spiritual beggar, bankrupt before the Lord. And everything that he has, as meager as it may be, it belongs unto God. So this morning, please note, I do not want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm trying to get something into you. Because I know that God uses the tool called generosity to help make and fashion us into the disciples he wants us to be and then for us to be mobilized to go do the work that he's called us to do in our area and throughout the world. So God uses generosity. That's why I bring it up. That's why Jesus talked about it so frequently. But once again, the rich man, he says, Oh, Jesus, uh, Father Abraham, I, I wish that you would just send Lazarus back so that my brothers will listen to a man come back from the dead. Father Abraham said, They have Moses and they have the prophets. If they're not going to listen to them, they're not going to listen to a man who comes back from the dead. They probably don't even know that Lazarus died. And that's the end of the parable. Now Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who always demanded a sign. They always wanted a sign. Show us and we'll believe. Show us and we'll believe. And Jesus says, listen, you've got the Bible. You've got the scripture. And if you don't believe that, you won't even believe it when I get up from the grave. Because the God who worked in the Old Testament is the same God who works in the New Testament. 
The God who spoke still speaks. The God who moved still moves. The God who redeemed still redeems. We serve the God who preserved Noah and his family in the worldwide flood. We serve the God who lifted Joseph out of the pit and placed him in the palace. We serve the God who parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry land. We serve the God who helped David defeat the giant named Goliath. We serve the God who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish. We serve a God who danced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. We serve a God who showed up and shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. We serve a God who came to earth some 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, died on a cruel cross, was placed into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, I said on the third day, he rose from the dead. He's ascended into the heavens with the promise he's gonna come back one day. He wants us in the meantime, between his first coming and his second coming, to be men and women of great generosity. Men and women who follow hard after God, who realize that when we come unto the Lord as a spiritual bankrupt beggar, that's the only posture and the only position that gives us access into God's presence. It's not that we are self-made men and women. It's not that we're our own gods. It's not that we're our own savior. It's not that we somehow can meet some of our needs and only God has to meet the bigger needs. No, God is God all by himself. And we are his children. So this morning, please hear that the only way that you and I get into God's kingdom is through repentance, not riches. Through relationship, not riches. Through righteousness, not riches. You and I ought to be a people marked by generosity. Why? Because God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Jesus Christ. And because God has been generous to us, we are generous unto Him. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. We give You this invitation. If someone is here who has never accepted your generous gift of salvation, may today be the day of their salvation. If someone is here and Lord, maybe we cling with a stingy hand to the things that you've blessed us with. Oh Lord, I pray that you will teach us that the best way to loosen the grip of greed is for us to give unto you and to give wholeheartedly. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the timeliness of your word. We thank you for the reliability of your word. And may you speak to us and may we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.